Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Welcome to the FMCSA Hours of Service Final Rule Question and Answer Session. Welcome to the Overdrive Radio Podcast for December 18, 2020. And as you might have guessed from the bit of audio at the top, we're going to dive back into some Q&A with FMCSA reps from the agency's public session yesterday, hosted online, as it delivered a raft of answers to driver questions about the changes that went into play back in late September. Some of those questions might well be a repeat to regular listeners, but not all by any stretch, so hold tight. I'm Todd Dills, your host for the podcast, and before we jump fully into questions around the new areas of change, the short haul and adverse driving conditions exceptions expansions, the 30-minute brake change, and split sleeper updates, I did want to highlight one area I know has been of concern to some of you, particularly given the difficulty of some ELD providers to account for the 14-hour clock pause value of the shorter split pairs in the moment when they happen on the road. This bit of audio comes from FMCSA Office of Enforcement and Compliance Director Joe DeLorenzo's answer to a question put to him yesterday about enforcement. Just what to expect if a driver is stopped and inspected mid-split as it were, before completing the second half of the pair. Implicit in the question, I believe, is should this driver worry about a 14-hour rule violation at that point before the second split break is completed? When he refers to logbook examples here, he's talking about the slides that FMCSA showed attendant to its presentation. You can download those slides via this December 18 Channel 19 blog post that also houses this podcast at overdriveonline.com slash channel19. Or check the show notes in your podcast player for a link as well. The slide in question is on page 24 of the presentation. Here's FMCSA Transportation Specialist Crystal Frederick asking the question. Okay, what if a driver is stopped for an inspection in between two intended rest periods? Yeah, so this is a, this question comes up, and it sort of it sort of comes up as a question of sort of how are you doing the calculation? This is very similar log to the one that we just looked at. So on one side of this log, we've got you know from uh, midnight to nine on duty time. So you've already you got nine hours, and then as you can see, you got ten, eleven, twelve on that side. The way that the you know, but. The question is what happens to that three hours because you don't have it paired up yet. In the example we showed you, that won't count. And it's the same thing in this case. In this case, if you get stopped or if your ELD is doing your calculation, the assumption is going to be that you're going to take that uh, qualifying matching break sometime before you go into violation. So in this case, as I said, you've got the nine hours on one side. So in order to get to your 14, you still got five hours left. So sometime, you know, by 5 p.m. or no later, you can't be driving anymore, and you need to start that seven-hour sleeper birth period in order to uh, in compliance with the rule. So if you have a log like this where you're starting fresh and moving forward, the assumption has to be that that three is going to pair. At once, though, I don't know if if relying on assumptions is the uh, best tack to take when it comes to the potential for an inspection. If it were me, I might prep for contingencies when starting a split and go ahead and annotate the first off-duty or sleeper birth period with my intentions. That way, if you're inspected prior to the next qualifying pair, at least the officer has something to go on other than just assumptions about such intentions. 
and or your word to him. There's a lot more where that came from in the, in the Q&A. And uh, also wanted to share a couple housekeeping items for the next couple of weeks and beyond for Overdrive Radio listeners. First, next week we'll go live with a special edition of Overdrive Radio on Wednesday rather than our usual Friday, given the Christmas holiday. And it's a special one indeed. We're beginning a rerun for you of our Over the Road podcast series from earlier this year, a co-production with Radiotopia and hosted by our own long-haul Paul Marhofer, who you heard from last week. In the following week, join us for our annual Year in Review. We'll be tracking back through some of the big developments and big insights of little, from little-known voices in trucking for owner-operators this year by counting down the most listened-to episodes of the year. Today, I also wanted to give Overdrive Radio listeners a window on a story of unexpected connection. It involves the 1999 Peterbilt cab over of owner-operator Mike Landis. Some of you will know Landis from prior coverage of outreach and advocacy efforts in uh, D.C. and as founder of the USTA Grassroots Group. This past October at That's a Big Ten Four on D.C., he told me a more full version of this story, uh, the story of his quite recognizable cab over. FYI, there's a video version of this story for views on the rig you can find in the Channel 19 post I mentioned earlier, too. Before we dive into it, though, a word from Overdrive Radio's sponsor. If you're a leased owner-operator, you need quality insurance to keep you protected. Call First Guard for the commercial truck insurance you need and the service you deserve. First Guard is the trucker's insurance company. We understand your needs and offer physical damage and non-trucking liability insurance for leased owner-operators. With First Guard, you always get fast and friendly service. Visit firstguard.com. That's the number one, stguard.com. First Guard, we speak trucker. Let's talk. I'm the owner of Landis and Sons Trucking out of Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Um, we run two trucks, mine, and I have a guy leased on. I'm a third-generation truck driver, first one to have my own. And uh, I have here a 1999 362 cab over Peterbilt. It's actually, I, I have a couple cab over Pete's. I seem to apparently like them more than most people do. Um, you know, my, my first truck was an 88 double bunk cab over Pete and I still have that one and then I happened to run across this truck when I first started trucking out of state when I turned 21 I used to see this truck going and I always thought man that's a cool old truck (laughs) it was obviously not as old as I thought it was but the way it's painted you know which I have a story behind why it's painted the way it is randomly through Facebook a buddy of mine back in um, spring of 17 was hunting for truck parts at a yard over in New Jersey and this truck was sitting here for sale and he posted on Facebook. I'm like, man, what? So I'm like, that's that truck that hauled, it, it hauled for every, anyone on the East Coast will know the red cab over Peterbilt that hauled for ShopRite. <laughs> um, that guy delivered groceries with it. Anyway, um, you know, so I, it had a new motor in it and had a new transmission. So it was pretty well taken care of mechanically. And I thought, man, that truck's probably way too much. So I didn't bother calling about it. And I let it go a couple months, and I had some motor issues with my truck. I was my 88 at the time, and it was just irritating me. And, and I thought, ah, I wonder if that truck ever sold. I got a hold of my buddy. He got me the number for the yard where it was at, not the guy that was selling it, but the yard where it was at. So I called this guy. You know, it was a typical northern Jersey yard. Yeah. I'm like, 
hey, uh, is there a red cab over Peterbilt for sale there? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, but that ain't my truck. I'm like, look, is there any way? I said, call the owner and ask him if you can give me his number or whatever, you know, because I get. Anyway, he, the guy ends up giving me the number. He goes, oh, I know him. He's all right. So I call him. And it's this, this old guy, Benny. Benny Thomas I bought this truck from. He's a little spindly old black guy from Jersey. Um, trucker his whole life. And uh, I call him, and he's very soft-spoken, very quiet. And so, you know, and uh, I say, yeah, I'm calling about this truck. Yeah, yeah, I still have it. Okay, what do you want for it? He told me, and I was like, what? That's it? I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that's yeah. it. Because I, I know, you know, he's like, oh, it's got a the motor on it. It's a factory reman from Detroit. You know, it's got a 60 Series 12.7 in it. He goes, it only has 10,000 miles on it, and the transmission's only got like 100,000, and the rears are new. And I'm like thinking, this guy's going to want 40 or 50 grand for this truck, right? I bought this truck for $17,000. <laughs> but he, the reason being, he goes, you know, this thing's a cab over. I'm like, listen, I run a cab over. I, I get it. So I went to look at it on the way to the beach one weekend in July. And, you know, he told me, he goes, he goes listen, I'm old. He goes, it needs polished. It, I go, whatever. And it wasn't. It was. It needed washed, polished. It was everything. But anyway, I could tell by looking at it, it was in pretty decent shape. And he's an old trucker. And he goes, I could tell, even though he maybe didn't have it spit shined, this truck meant something to this guy. And and he was retiring to take care of his wife because she was in bad health and he needed to be home and stuff like that. So he's like, well, you know, I just just want to make sure you know what you're getting and i so i pulled my phone out and i showed him pictures of my 88 that i have stretched out and cleaned up and everything and he's like oh wow okay <laughs> and then i got to talking to him and i said so you know why why does this truck have the paint job on it that it has like you know fairly newer this is typical back in the day he goes listen he goes i've hauled groceries for 45 years i've been trucking it's all i've done the same people with my own trucks he said I bought my first truck was a 73, 352 cab over Peterbilt in 75. He said in 78, I ordered a brand new one. He said, and I like that 73 so much I had it made identical. He goes, then I got an 86 and it was identical and a 92 and this 99. He goes, my entire career I've driven nothing but cab over Pete's that look just like this. (laughs) And so the truck number is 762. And um, most times my truck numbers, because I race motocross, are... My number, my kids' numbers, my trailers are lettered with my kids' numbers, whatever, which are three-digit numbers. Like, my 88 is truck number 869 because that's my racing number. And I thought, you know what? I'm not even changing the number on this truck. It's a three-digit number, which I use anyway. And it's the real only number that's ever been on this truck. <laughs> and, and and I just, me and Benny connected so cool just talking about trucking and stuff like that. It was a few months before I got involved in like the ELD protest in October of 17. And part of the reason he was getting out of trucking was because he didn't want to deal with the ELDs. We got into that conversation. Here you have me as a, a younger generation truck driver, even though at the time I had four, 14 years experience, whatever it was. And here you have a guy that's all but 80 years old that did it his whole life. And, and we're there able to talk about trucking. But I grew up with the old ways of trucking. So it was, it was pretty cool. I got a picture of me and him in front of the truck before I left with it and everything. And the truck's just an interesting piece because it's so odd the way it's built. It's got the windows in the back. It's a single bunk, but it's got um, <clears throat> and it's got the twelve seven Detroit, a thirteen over. It's got two speed rear ends in it. It's got three fifty five four eighty three ratios that you can shift on the fly. So the thing hauls ass and then pulls buildings down. And uh, it's got 
you know, air track 46,000 pound heavy haul suspension on it. And the guy hauled groceries, <laughs> but he ran New York city, Massachusetts, yeah. New England. It, it, he built it like a brick house. And you know what? I pull food grade tankers with it, which is not easy on a truck. And this truck just all my, all my cab over Pete's I've ever had. And other people I know that have had them. They're, they're the type of truck that was just built when, sh- when stuff was built to last. And, um, I, lo- I love driving it. It's 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 a cool old truck. It's, it was, everyone thinks it's way older than what it is because of the way it looks, I guess, the paint job and all. But it's got a cool little history behind it. Even now, years after he hasn't had it, I'll, I'll be going down the road running New England. And if I'm going to Massachusetts or something, someone will be like, hey, that's the old ShopRite truck. But <clears throat> to me, it's kind of funny because I used to see it as a younger driver in yeah. my in my 88. Yeah you know be bopping around and think oh that's cool now i own it so. big thanks to owner operator landis for that tale now back into the regulatory mall we go here's fmcsa's facilitator crystal frederick uh, from the q a yesterday laying out three other the three other voices we'll hear from variously uh, today from fmcsa i am joined by fmcsa's office of enforcement director joe Lorenzo, transportation specialist rich clementi an attorney advisor from the Office of the Chief Counsel, Bill Varga, who will be answering your questions today. First up, the short haul exception. Here's Joe DiLorenzo setting up the change that happened there back in September. That exception, most importantly to note, is that it is an exception not from the hours of service limitations. However, it's an exception from filling out a record of duty status or having to take a 30 minute break. So those two things are what you get accepted from. You still have to comply with the 11 to 14 hour rule, 60, 70, all those different items still apply. So what the rule says now is 150 air miles and 14 hours uh, is what the limitation is in order to take advantage of this exception, as opposed to the 100 air miles and 12 hours that we had before. It provides some consistency, a little bit more flexibility, but if you meet that, uh, those two primary requirements, including as, as well as the starting and ending at, e- at the same place each day, then you are eligible to take advantage of this exception and not need to have a record of duty status. The couple of points that I want to remind everybody in here, I actually got a couple of these questions earlier today in another program I was involved in, um, but you do have to have uh, some sort of accounting of your time. Okay, and that accounting of the time looks like what's stated in the first bullet there, where the motor carrier has to record the driver's time in, time out, total number of hours each day. Again, the obvious reason is you still need to be able to calculate 60, 70. All right, you maintain those records for six months, just like you would with any other record or duty status. Um, and then, you know, for certain drivers, you have to have the total time as well for the preceding seven days. The important point here is this is a carrier record, not necessarily required to be uh, maintained on the vehicle, uh, not not required to be uh, maintained on the vehicle. Uh, there are times where you may be asked for it, so having some availability of it, either in electronic or paper format, not a bad idea if you want to speed an inspection along, but it's not required um, in order to have on the vehicle. That's really the point of the exception is not having to fill out that record. If you're the independent carrier and driver both, as I know a lot of you listening will be, and you're running short haul, I imagine that time record is, in fact, on the truck with you. But anyway, the first question earmarked around the short haul provision had to do with just what to do if you don't meet the parameters for the exception on any given day. It happens. 
Maybe the location's a little bit further than 150 air miles. Maybe that day, <clears throat> it was gonna take a little bit longer. The question I got earlier today was, I couldn't make it back in time that day because of a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of issues that I couldn't control. So I didn't start and finish at the same day. So what do you do when that happens? Simply put, for that day, for that trip, you fill out a paper log. And as long as you don't have to fill out a paper log more than eight times out of every 30 days, and it's a rolling 30-day period, you don't have to have any LD either. So these are important points to keep in mind because you want to make sure you manage to this exception if you have runs that go outside that radius or you think this may happen because this is a per driver. So driver A can exceed eight times or, or seven times or whatever. A driver B can also do the same thing. So you may have a run that is 200 miles away, and that's fine. Just make sure that you, that driver doesn't do it, or make sure that one driver does it, and that's your driver that fills out a logbook or has an ELD. So managing to that and kind of thinking through that up front on the short haul exception is pretty important just so that you don't uh, find yourself in a situation where a driver needed an ELD. DeLorenzo then received a question related to the exemption to utilizing an ELD for short haul operators. If I go over the 150 air mile radius more than eight in 30 days, when can I go back to utilizing the ELD exception as a short hauler? As soon as you get back to the point where that rolling 30 day period doesn't have eight times where the driver needed to fill out a record of duty status. So that 30 day period keeps on rolling. It's just like your 60, 70 hour clock just keeps on moving. So as soon as, if you're at eight, and you're like, ah, I don't want to do it anymore, or you ended up with nine or 10, and you're on an ELD that particular point in time, as soon as it drops off so that the current 30-day period doesn't have more than eight days where that happens, then you can go back to using the short haul exception. Next question, and a common one, had to do with just where calculation of the new 150 air mile radius in which a driver can qualify for the logbook exception. Uh, that is just what point to, to do the calculation of the radius from. It's very simply in plain, plain language there, where did you start and stop that run? So wherever you got your paperwork, wherever you left from, if you drive to the location, uh, if you drive to your yard, you pick up your truck, that's your start and end location. If you leave from home and, and go off on your run, that's your start and end location. So wherever you actually physically started the the active transportation, that is where your 150 uh, air mile radius starts, where you have to stop and start at the end. Next question, what happens if a short haul driver encounters adverse driving condition and is unable to return the work reporting location within 14 hours? So in that case, there is an example here where a short haul driver runs into an accident after they were on duty for 12 hours and holds them up for two hours and they can't get back, then that would be 16 hours on that day. So therefore they can't have a short haul, they can't use the short haul exception because it very clearly says back within 14 hours. See the previous discussion I just had, the driver fills out a record of duty status for that day and then you can kind of move on, right? There is a, the possibility they would need to have a 30 minute break, but again on short haul with the current 30 minute break requirement, where you have to do eight hours of consecutive driving without a 30-minute break, highly unlikely the 30-minute break requirement is even gonna ever come into play on a short haul, um, on a short haul exception scenario. 
So I wouldn't worry too much about the 30-minute breaks because while the exception is there, the practical reality of it is the chances of you actually ever needing it, it, it after being able to drive eight consecutive hours in a 14-hour day on a short-haul trip where you're starting and ending at the same location, not particularly likely. The 150 air mile exception no longer says the driver may not exceed 11 hours of driving and still claim the exception. So may a short haul driver who encounters adverse driving conditions exceed the 11 hour limit by up to two hours and still use the short haul exception as long as the driver is back home and off duty within 14 hours. Well, the, the rule never said anything about the 11 hours specifically, but it always said that it was only an exception from filling out a record of duty status. So the 11-hour rule, as I mentioned earlier, always has applied, and it still does. So if in that example you're back within 14 and you, you drove uh, 13 of those, you're still eligible for the short haul exception, but you've got a violation for violating the 11 hour rule. Uh, we're seeing more of that. Um, as I've talked to some ELD vendors, they're seeing that just because it was pretty hard to do when you only had 12 hours to work with. More likely that it could happen in some cases if you have 14 hours to work with. You've got that three hour gap there. So, you know, the, four, the 11 hours doesn't have anything specifically to do with the short haul exception, but you do have to comply with all the hours of service rules don't, then you're in violation at that point in time. Joe, can, okay. let me chime in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but the driver could avoid the violation if they were willing to fill a log for that day, basically taking themselves outside the short-haul exception for that given day, and then they would be allowed the two additional hours of driving time under the adverse driving conditions, as well as yeah. the extension of the 14-hour clock. You're making it, yes. The, the, so that was the example that I showed earlier. This question, I was did not specify the adverse driving conditions, so that I kind of just got the impression that they were just driving along. But if it is related to adverse driving conditions, it feels exactly correct. And that was the example that I went over earlier. I showed one where that comes up. FMCSA Transportation Specialist Rich Clementi set up the adverse driving conditions change. The September release final rule added two hours of duty time in addition to the two hours of drive to account for unforeseen on-highway events that qualify. Clemente emphasized the shift in the definition of adverse conditions in the regs, too. That put more focus on the driver making the determination, a significant part of the change. Here's Clemente. And also adding uh, flexibility, we amended the definition somewhat by now allowing the role of the driver to be included in these determinations uh, after either a qualifying rest period or starting a, a run. Uh, they are now allowed uh, to make the determination as opposed to the dispatcher or the uh, the motor carrier uh, prior. So we basically tweaked the definition um, uh, those two ways, and we've allowed the uh, the two extra hours per se uh, for property and passenger carriers. Uh, again, the previous definition was uh, snow, sleet, fog, or other adverse conditions, a highway covered with snow or ice, or unusual uh, road uh, traffic conditions. Key points being none of which were apparent uh, to the person dispatching the run at the time it was begun. And as I said, the new definition now includes uh, the role of the driver in making that determination. Uh, again, added flexibility here. Uh, certain things such as uh, normal uh, rush hour traffic and things like that are not included. Uh, those are not unforeseen events. 
Uh, you know, again, these are unforeseen uh, events uh, such as a highway that may get closed uh, with an accident that was not known at the time of dispatch or to the driver. So again, uh, those these are unforeseen events. Uh, not only are the additional two hours of driving allowed, but also the two hours on the on-duty window. So can a driver who's involved in an accident, him or herself, claim that accident as an adverse driving condition? If you've ever been in the unfortunate circumstance to wonder about the, the answer to that one, well, Clemente gave a definitive no. Okay, next question. Can the driver use the adverse driving conditions exception even if the adverse driving condition has cleared when the driver arrives at the location where the condition occurred? On that one, I believe they they can only account for the time when the you know the time to that they could be able to get through the adverse condition. Uh, I don't know if Joe or, or Bill one day had anything on that one. I would simply stress that the maximum time would be two hours, and um, the, the example given where the driver sits in traffic and traffic starts moving because the accident cleared, that would be the appropriate use of the adverse driving conditions exception. Are drivers required to annotate the type of adverse driving condition encountered on their ELD? On that one, the answer is not. They don't have to, by regulation, uh, note the type of adverse driving. But what they should do is annotate on their ELD. I believe it's 395.28C, as in Charlie, annotate that an adverse driving condition did did occur, and that might be the reason for additional hours. Uh, driving hours on their on their ELD or their logbook. When should I record the adverse driving conditions exception? When the condition occurs or at the end of my day when I have over hours due to the adverse condition? I would suggest uh, annotating it when the condition occurs. Uh, that's when the additional hours of time are going to be added or needed uh, per se. Uh, on the record. So my recommendation would be to annotate it when the condition occurs. And I'll just add to that. I agree with Rich 100%. It's also important because that will help you to establish that if anybody asks. Because as you know, when you do an annotation, your ELD is going to do a location. And that's always helpful when somebody questions your log later down the road. You have all your ducks in a row to explain that type of condition where and when it happened, if it's possible. It may not be possible. We don't want you doing that while you're driving down the road. Uh, but the next opportunity where you have the ability to do that, certainly uh, that, that would be the recommendation. What kind of proof do we have to maintain to prove adverse driving conditions? There is nothing in the regulations as far as proof other than what we just talked about in uh, this, the annotation issue. Uh, there's no documentation. Uh, per se that has to be, uh, you know, held or whatever because of the, the adverse driving. It should be annotated on the ELD or the log. If I run into adverse driving conditions in the beginning of my shift, am I still able to run on the two extra hours to complete my delivery, even though I would be able to find a park location prior to my 11 or 14 running out? Yeah, that um, I might want to run that one by Joe or Bill. Uh, I believe it's going to come down to whether it's unforeseen. Uh, they say at the beginning of the shift, um, they're still, as long as it's an unforeseen event, they're still allowed those extra two hours uh, per se on the driving and on the uh, the duty windows. I agree with that. I mean, and 
with the caveat that the two hours does not, the maximum is two hours. The time you allow on it does not exceed the actual setback as a result of the adverse driving conditions. And, and you reminded me too, Bill, one other point I'll bring up about that, and it may not be in the questions. Uh, if it only takes an hour and a half to get through the, uh, the unforeseen event or whatever, then you're not allowed to, I mean, you're only allowed the amount of time it takes uh, for the adverse driving condition. If a driver was heading to a truck stop and it was shut down for unknown reasons and they were close to their 14 hour and needed to get fuel, would that be considered an adverse driving condition? Again, I would say if they didn't know about the shutdown uh, before they got to the truck stop. I, I, I don't know if I would agree with that, Rich. I mean, I guess part of the reason would be why is the truck stop shut down? If it was only shut, if it was shut down because of a road or traffic conditions, um, it clearly qualifies adverse driving condition under definition. However, if it was shut down for a totally unrelated reason, for example, they had a power outage, um, that doesn't technically fit the definition of an adverse driving condition under, under 395.2. Changes to the 30-minute break have most definitely resulted in increased ease of use for drivers. You may have read a report or two by my colleague James Gillette to this effect in late fall. Sorting through their system's data wells, some ELD makers can clearly see fewer possible brake-related violations after the September 29 change to the rule. The requirement to take a break, as Rich Clemente laid out for listeners in the Q&A, is now after eight hours of drive time rather than eight hours duty time. An on-duty not driving status or off-duty status, uh, or a combination of the two side-by-side, -side, can satisfy the requirements for the break. Previously, only off-duty or sleeper could. There weren't a great deal of questions about the break, but there were a couple that we've addressed before, but with new wrinkles around the yard moves, on-duty not driving status and function in ELDs, and roadside inspections as a 30-minute break. Here's Crystal Frederick with the first, quite simple question. Does the 30-minute break have to be consecutive? The answer to that, Crystal, is yes. That 30 minutes of 30 minutes of time has to be consecutive, and it can be a combination, as it says, uh, shows on the slide, of two different student, uh, duty statuses. It could be off-duty for 10 minutes, on-duty not driving for 20, as long as the 30 was consecutive. Can yard moves and roadside inspections count towards the 30-minute break? Uh, both of those, Crystal, come in very frequently, and the answer is yes, both of those can qualify. Uh, the Again, those would have to be 30 consecutive minutes. A key point I want to make about the yard moves is, is that the vehicle obviously cannot be taken out on a public road or a public highway. It has to be, uh, you know, on a yard or whatever. The vehicle can't be taken out on the road because that would uh, break the 30-minute break. Uh, roadside inspections, as long as they take 30 minutes minimum, also qualify because that's on duty, not driving time, and so is, uh, so is yard moves. Do you need to note this 30-minute break on your log? Uh, the answer to that is no. It will, it, it should show as either uh, 30 minutes, as I said, it could be broken up from different duty statuses, but it does not need to be specially notated on the, on the log. The key is that the log shows a consecutive 30 minutes, not driving. That's right. And what about PC or personal conveyance, an off-duty status that has its own special mode in electronic logging device programs. Does PC count toward the 30-minute break? It, it, you know, there, it, as we all know, personal conveyance is not a 
a rule per se. It is more guidance. But if it is correctly used, it is uh, considered to be off-duty time. So it's 30 consecutive minutes, uh, Bill or Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 30 consecutive minutes of PC would be considered for the break. Could be. I would agree with that, but I would say in that case, because the vehicle is actually moving, it's in the driver's interest to clearly annotate to a log that that 30 minutes constitutes personal conveyance in order to protect the driver or something in the event it's questioned during an inspection. Uh, a driver is notified of a freeway closure while picking up a load and plans an alternate route that takes an, uh, an hour and a half excuse me, takes one hour and a half longer than usual. Is this a valid adverse driving condition? Uh, Bill, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I would say that would be a proper use of the adverse driving condition exception. The key is the definition in 395.2 in that the driver did not know of the situation before starting the shift or coming off a sleepable period or rest period. Um, so timing-wise, the uh, the situation would trigger the use, allowed use of the adverse driving conditions. And there's no reason he can't avoid sitting in traffic by taking an adverse, uh, uh, an alternative rule. Uh, the key here is, though, it, it added one and a half hours to the trip. So he, he or she gets one and a half hours to add on to the clock, not the full two hours, because you can never add more than the actual time you lost under, due to the adverse condition. Finally, the split sleeper changes have been of perhaps the most interest to overdrive readers I know. We didn't hear a whole lot new from the FMCSA at Q&A, but for those who may be unaware, 8 and 2 hour off-duty split with the September 29 changes became a possible up to 7 and 3 hours. The shorter period must be at least 2 hours long and the longer at least 7 hours to qualify. Those are minimums, mind you, and any set of qualifying pairs must equal at least 10. Both periods, the shorter and the longer, pause the 14-hour duty day clock, unlike in prior rules where the shorter period counted against that clock. This has opened up new possibilities for uh, mid-duty period naps and the like. And what you do within the new berth parameters otherwise is pretty open, and any time you get uh, to a full 10-hour period in the sleeper or combined with some off-duty, your daily available hours reset fully to 14 on duty and 11 drive. Uh, we've got a good amount of resources when it comes to how to make the rolling duty day calculations when you are splitting at overdriveonline.com. Search hours of service and split sleeper together to find a how-to video and a long explanation with hypothetical logbook uh, examples and scenarios and more. Joe DiLorenzo also gave quite a good explanation explicitly for overdrive during our August live session with him that you can find as uh, the overdrive radio edition of September 25, 2020. Here are the questions that were answered about the new split sleeper. Again, when De Lorenzo refers to logbook examples, you can find those uh, near the end of the PDF of uh, FMCSA's slides. Find a link uh, to, that, to that PDF in the Overdrive Radio show notes for this podcast or via this December 18, 2020 post on the Channel 19 blog. Overdriveonline.com slash channel 19. May a 10 consecutive hour off-duty period be paired with a subsequent qualifying 7 plus consecutive hour sleeper birth period? No, you can't pair that 10 hour off-duty. The thing about, you know, the thing about that that you need to remember is you probably really don't need to. 
Because if you get a 10-hour off-duty period, you're starting at zero on your 11 and 4. And then you can take a 7 at some point in time and then match that up with a 3 and still should have the hours that you need. This is a published FAQ that's on the website. I think we'll talk about those a little later. But that's the best way to think about that is you're already starting off at zero. Uh, next, under the sleeper birth provision, a driver takes seven hours in the sleeper birth and later takes an off-duty period of three hours before arriving home. When the driver arrives home within the permissible hours, what rest is required to reset their day clock? Sure. There's really a couple of pieces to that. So if you want to reset at zero uh, in order for your uh, 11 and 14 hour clock to start, you have to take 10 hours there. Okay, so that's that's kind of first answer to the question. The other option is you could take seven hours of sleeper birth time there um, and match that up with the three and continue to work your splits. But that just, I guess, depends on whether you want to go in the house or not or if you want to get your rest of um, So somehow you need to kind of, you always kind of have those options uh, to match it up. But if you get up to a 10, you know, then you're starting off at zero and one. You could take seven hours of sleeper and an additional number of hours that will get you at least 10 off duty, or you could just take at least 10. Can you pair a three hour off duty period with a 10 plus hour sleeper birth segment? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the language in the rule that I went over at the very beginning, those statements are at least. Okay, so you can, but remember though, so that, it's the same kind of scenario that we just talked about. You know, um, you're not going to want to continue the split process if you've taken at least 10. Your three won't count because you've matched it up with a longer, at least seven sleeper birth period. But then at the end of that 10 plus hours of sleeper birth, you're starting off at zero on both your 11 and your 14. So you're good to go. Can you pair a three hour off duty period with a eight hour sleeper birth plus two hour off duty consecutive. So three hours off duty and then eight hours of sleeper, two hours off duty consecutive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what you've got there is you've got a three hour off duty and you've got an at least seven hour period. So that will qualify, those will be qualifying splits, three and the eight. So the three won't count against your 14. But also then, bonus is you get 10 hours consecutive, so you're starting off at zero when you're done. If a driver uses the sleeper birth split and is found in violation of the 11 or 14 hour rule, can he continue using the sleeper birth split moving forward? So if there was a violation in the past, yeah, you can go forward. You just got to get yourself out of violation. You know, you just got to not create any additional violations going forward. Um, Bill, I, we had. Did you have anything you wanted to add on that? But that's basically, I think, where we want to be with that. Yeah, I think the way the the thing the driver has to be careful with is due to the violation, there may be time slots that do not count as part of the sleeper birth, and therefore an investigator or um, roadside inspector may count those as subsequent violations because it's a running clock. So you, the key is to get back into compliance and um, take into account. Uh, time that was an illegitimate under the sleeper birth exception. Another sleeper question. What if a driver makes 
two shorter breaks of two hours before he makes a longer break of eight hours in the sleeper berth. Do both of the two-hour breaks stop the 14-hour and count as part of the split? Excellent question. Uh, the short answer is no, uh, but the rest of the explanation is you got to figure out which one of those two hours is going to be the most advantageous to you as a driver in terms of, you know, giving you the most availability of hours, and one of those will be able to then be deducted from your shot, but not both. If a driver takes a two-hour break during the day and needs that time to be excluded from the 14-hour in order to be in compliance, and then that driver arrives home, is that driver required to go into the sleeper berth for eight hours in order to avoid the violation? Or can the driver go, into, go to his bed for 10 hours instead? Uh, yes, either of those options is sufficient. That if you, um, uh, that was one of the, it's similar to the, the questions we had earlier that I had a slide on. So yeah, you're, if you have a two, uh, when you get home, you can either pair it with an eight, uh, or you could take 10 at home and, uh, and you'll be all set. So thanks for listening. And a big thanks for the uh, support from Overdrive Radio's sponsor, First Guard. Overdrive Radio is a production of Overdrive Magazine. Sign up to receive Overdrive's daily newsletter featuring trucking news, views, and analysis geared toward current and prospective owner-operators and small fleet owners via overdriveonline.com slash newsletter hyphen sign up. The podcast is edited and produced by myself, Todd Dills, with no small amount of support from Overdrive Extra contributor Paul Marholfer, Overdrive Editorial Director Max Heine, Social Media Coordinator Holly Young, News Editor Matt Cole, and Executive Editor James Gillette. Next week, listen for the voices of long-haul Paul Marhofer as we begin rerunning the eight episodes of the Over the Road podcast series for Overdrive Radio listeners. And, until next time, big Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday to you, whether on the road or back home. Hope it's a great one for you. Be safe. Stay pro out there.